Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of the History of Westeros podcast, a podcast dedicated to George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire and HBO's Game of Thrones. Of course, today we are talking only about Game of Thrones. We are, in fact, going to make a policy this season of TV show reviews of splitting everything into two episodes. We're going to have one episode that is show-only discussion. We'll only barely, if ever, reference the books. And in the other episodes, the companion episodes, there will be show-to-book discussion where we will specifically relate the show to the books and try to make guesses and parallels and discuss the differences. So we're going to do a lot of material this season. Hopefully you've already checked out our Season 5 preview, but if not, you can go back and check that out anytime. If you've already watched the first episode, you'll see that we've predicted, tried to predict a few of those things. And, of course, we will be discussing every plot line and every location. So, without any further ado, welcome back, Sean. Uh, a lot of you, yep, yep, great to have you again. Um, a lot of you guys are familiar with Sean. You watched us last season and have been hearing his opinions, and we'll be... Based on a listener suggestion, we're going to do something a little bit different. I'm going to try not to talk too much about a subject before I let Sean discuss it, so I don't give him too many ideas. But, that said, I don't have much idea what's going to happen this season either. Last year, I I knew a lot of things that were going to happen because of book parallels, but this season, so many divergences... I'm kind of out there with you on a lot of these things. I have no idea what's going to happen other than some things I've figured out from looking at the trailers really closely. But we're not going to talk too much about what's coming. We're going to talk about what we've just seen. Uh, To be clear, we have not watched the leaked episodes, and that's going to stay that way. Ashea is also in that boat. By the way, Ashea will be back for the uh, book-to-show discussion, and we're going to have some guests lined up this season, especially the guys from Radio Westeros, the guy and gal from Radio Westeros, rather. We'll probably also have a little of Jeff Hartline, and we're going to do a roundtable discussion uh, for book people who, uh, a support group <laughs> for for show-passing book. We're going to have a, a roundtable discussion with several people involved in that, so that should be a lot of fun. But like I said, we're, we haven't watched the leaked episodes. We're gonna, we want to be able to discuss the episodes one at a time, be able to make guesses as to what's coming. So we don't want to be spoiled on what's coming. But, um, <laughs> of course, this is also uh, one thing that I'd like to say about our show, is we are the only A Song of Ice and Fire slash Game of Thrones podcast that is heavily infested with cats. <laughs> and we, we like it that way. So let's talk a bit about why... We're doing things separately, and that is, of course, the main reason is, of course, because of the major divergences. Uh, the, the show and the books are their own animal now. Things are, it's almost like these are two entirely different stories with just a lot in common. So it really makes sense to discuss them separately. Sean, how do you feel about that? I know you've only read the first book. You are mostly still unsullied. It gives you some perspective on, on how things are different, though. Yeah, um, I imagine, in general, if you had two different materials you know, uh, following each other, one cop and the other. Once there's some changes early on, even though they might be minor, the deeper in it gets, changes compound, you know. And I can also understand so many reasons that you'll need changes in a show, just, you know, casting decisions and, uh, you know, the the cost of filming. I don't want to go on too much, but having read the first book recently, one change that I think is fundamentally meaningless uh, Caitlin trying to go down to warn Ned about the letter that she got, you know, and in, a, <laughs> in a book, she like takes a boat trying to beat him there. Whereas in the show, I think he's already there and she just shows up later on or whatever. 
I'm just trying to imagine how much effort it would have been to film her getting on a boat, casting her crew for that boat, all the water footage, you know, getting down. And then even when she gets there and Littlefinger and Ned go to meet her and they like go out on some trail on a cliff, you know, it's not really necessary. And it would have been a huge production cost and sucked up a lot of time in a show that could have been developing something else, you know. So lots of changes I can see the reasons for, but if I understand correctly, they're getting to the point now where they're diverging significantly. Yeah, they're and, just kind of making their own stories up in some po- yeah. in some parts. And in some ways that's going to be good, in some ways it's going to be bad. But we'll, we'll go through it and we'll see where it is. But we're going to judge it on its own merits for the most part. Like I said, this isn't going to be about comparing it to the book so much. I try whenever I'm watching a movie or something based on a book or a true story or whatever, my intent is to decide, is this good or not? As opposed to, are they following the original or the true story? That's, although, even though I try to do that, I recognize your thoughts can still be swayed and tainted, you know? So yes. uh, I'm sure there'll be lots of different opinions and reasonings, uh, but I don't think any of it's going to change that the show is good and also the book is good. Yeah, <laughs> right, yes. So we'll try not to compare them too much. We'll judge them on their own merits. I agree. They're both good. They're both different. And they both face a different set of challenges in the creation of them. Um, so let's start here real quick. Of course, you can always visit historyofwesteros.com to check out our art page and our forums and a lot of other fun stuff, especially for you all who are new to the show. Some of you are, are probably just discovering us uh, looking for season five reviews there's sure are a lot of them out there Uh, i'm glad you've chosen us to uh, enjoy season five with so let's get started this i think this episode is uh some people were a little disappointed with the episode because maybe they just they don't consider it as as, as exciting the pacing is a little slower but i think that's not only completely understandable but entirely necessary the end of last season featured a lot of arcs kind of closing a lot of things were settled a lot of things uh, are restarting, and a lot of things need to be reacted to. Go ahead and say it. A lot of characters died. A lot of characters <laughs> died. Yes, that's true. Tywin died. The Red Viper died. And a big part of of what we're setting up is the reactions to those important character deaths. The big one being Tywin is probably the biggest one, but there are so many big ones. Let's go ahead and start there at King's Landing. Now we don't start literally at King's Landing. We start. In a dream sequence, a memory from Cersei, and my first thing, the first thing I was struck by in this scene of Cersei's memories is how great a job this young actress did at pulling off young Cersei. It was really, really great. Uh, Her name is Nell Williams, not to be confused with Nell Tiger Free, who is the actress playing Myrcella. So a little Lannister confusion with some uh, actresses named Nell there who are of similar age, so... Um, but I think that, yeah, like I said, I think this, this Nell Williams did an excellent job pulling off Young Cersei. She's got that attitude, and she goes that line, you're not terrifying. And <laughs> I only hesitates slightly when she is asked for some blood, but she she goes ahead and she does, does it. She does do it, yeah. yeah. I, I was reminded of a thought I had, pretty sure it was last season, when she was going to see the mountain. It was like leading up to the fight with Oberon. She, yes. she, yeah, I remember now. She He's just like slaughtering people, and uh, she like steps over and through blood and dead bodies to talk to him, you know. And uh, I remember thinking that that was, uh, I don't know what the word is, an indication uh, of her willingness to get dirty. Uh, She's not just off in some tower ordering people around. She's out there, you know, talking to the executioner, stepping through the blood of dead men. And you kind of see that here, too. She's walking through the woods into this witch's hut. She's not, she's pretty bold and fearless and, 
uh, is willing to stand up to someone who maybe she should be afraid of, but was bold about it anyway, you know, so I think it's an interesting consistency in a presentation of her character. Yeah, I agree with that. And she is also, the the witch kind of tries to intimidate her, and she just, it's like she comes back at her. She says, you know, you're not threatening, you're not terrifying, I'm going to threaten you. You know, if you don't do what I want, you know, my father's going to find out about it. So that's that's mm-hmm. Cersei, always, you know, no matter what, she just doubles down on I'm in charge. <laughs> uh, it's a very consistent part of her character, I like that. Um, so, but the actual event itself, this is where things get pretty interesting. She asks three questions. She's allowed three questions. She takes the three questions. And the first question, I'll go ahead and get your reaction to each of these. Um, the first one is when, basically, when will I marry the prince? And she responds, you will marry the king. Yeah. And of course, that's kind of straightforward already. We see that half, she already, he's already married Robert and well, he's already dead. But at the time she thought she was going to marry Rhaegar. Yeah, and that probably doesn't need a whole lot of discussion. It's the next two questions that where things get uh, a little more interesting, a little more intriguing, a little more mysterious. Will the king and I have children? Is the next question, and the answer is he'll have twenty and you'll have three. <laughs> gold will be their crowns and gold will be their shrouds. Okay, so go ahead, Sean. What does all that mean? Uh yeah, obviously, you know, it meant that he was having kids without her, yeah, which we all kind of know anyway. Yeah. Which I wonder if modern Cersei, because that scene kind of cuts to her in that carriage. I wonder if she's like going through her mind, how many have I killed so far? Like, 17 <laughs> or 18? is a yeah. huge number, yeah, right? <laughs> uh, but, uh, yeah, and she and said she would have three, which one, you know, assuming you believe the prophecy, which oftentimes prophecies are and have been very accurate, she's not going to have any more kids. Uh she uh, <laughs> she is forty in the show, which isn't so. That's not a huge surprise. Yeah, but, yeah. But they, Tywin, if you believe what Tywin was saying last season, he was kind of expecting that she could still have kids. Yeah. Maybe one with Loras. Um, um, of course, that we know how that might have gone. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, now you Tywin. Now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He just refuses to to see some things that are pretty blatant. Uh, their gold being their crown and gold being their shroud, you know. Uh, she says that for all three of them. Yeah. So on one hand, that could be uh, a hint that Tom is going to die, or but maybe Marcella could also be a queen without Tom dying. Maybe I yeah, I don't know. Plus, but, they also just all have gold hair. Yeah, right, and well, furthermore, beyond <laughs> that, gold might represent just the Lannisters themselves in general. You know, your own name is going to be your own doing. You know, so. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I do appreciate scenes like that. I think that one wasn't necessarily uh, super profound to me. You know, I kind of see all this anyway, but I do like that the show puts an effort to present it and, uh, and did a good job with it. Uh, and then the final question is, but I will be queen? And she says, Un- yes, you'll be queen until another younger and more beautiful casts you down. Yeah. I'm not getting the exact quote there, but that's that's the gist yeah. of it. Uh, wh- what do you think that means? I guess there's a few kind of obvious ones, but there's but it's not straightforward which one she's talking about. There's multiple candidates. Right, there? it could be Daenerys. You know, Cersei certainly is afraid of Marjorie at the moment, but maybe it's Danny. Uh, but I will also point out that, again, uh, as accurate as prophecies often are they're also vague enough what did she think that she was going to be queen and there would just never be another queen like you know what i mean it's not was it that bold from melisandre to predict that joffrey was going down like you know uh i don't i don't know uh but uh 
it's definitely neat to to think about how Cersei interprets these things. What what's driving her? What motivates her? Having these thoughts planted in her since she's a little girl's new insight to her character. I agree with that. And of course, we're immediately reminded of this as Cersei gets out of the litter, having just remembered these prophecies, especially this last one about a younger, more beautiful one, because she's walking up the steps and Marjorie gives her a look. She kind of like gives her the eye and Cersei just stone faced stares back at her with doesn't break her expression at all, but it's not a friendly expression. And then Cersei goes back to being imperious, makes all the mourners wait Goes into the throne, or goes into the, the burial chamber, where, or rather, not the burial chamber, whatever that big room is in the sept there. And Tywin sitting there with his creepy eye things over his those body. Creepy, those are totally normal. <laughs> <laughs> and immediately, despite remembering these warnings about her children being in danger, she doesn't fully accept what Jamie is saying, which is Jamie. Jamie's impresses upon her the need for them to. All, all more important now than for them to work together. It's, it's this is the time when their enemies are going to really be moving in on them because because yeah. Tywin's gone and Tywin was the you know the bulwark. He was the the anchor of the Lannister family, and and the main dynamo. And of course, Cersei thinks she's fully capable without him. I, I would guess, but she's still more paranoid about Tyrion than anyone else, and less concerned about their other enemies than she is about. The Tyrells, specifically Marjorie and Tyrion, who is her main enemy, and she also just wants to throw a lot of blame on Jaime for yeah. for letting Tyrion go, uh, which he basically doesn't. She figures out because he doesn't deny it. He doesn't want to lie to her. So I mean, she asked because she was suspected. In yeah, the first she kind of just made sense. You know, yeah. he has motivation and ability. So, and the other one, other thing I wanted to point out for the scene that was interesting is that they're playing the Reigns of Castamere again. It's really slow. It's a very mod. It's a modified, very slow, drawn out version, but it really adds to the the scene, uh, the mood of the scene as it's somber and it's like this is the Reigns of Castamere are kind of moving on because Tywin is the man who established that. Ty- that's Tywin's legend. That's Tywin's thing, and it's like it's like a the way the music was done. It was like a this is fading out. Is going away. The power of Tywin is gone, and what will the Lannisters do? What do you think? What do you think about Tywin's? What do you think it means for the Lannisters that Tywin is gone? And what do you think about that exchange between Jaime and Cersei? Yeah, I thought that the, the exchange between Jaime and Cersei is about what you'd expect. Uh, and you know, Tywin being gone, it's not. I, I, I want to point out, it's not just that Tywin's gone. <laughs> Tyrion's gone too. Yeah. How much Cersei likes him or understands. He's a big part of their success. He's done a lot to help them. And uh, and and it's worth noting, Jamie, on a certain level, Jamie's gone too. He's not what he used to be. You know, he might still command a certain amount of respect or authority or whatever, but he can't actually just take on anyone like he could before. Right. Uh, the uh, Lannisters seem to be in bad shape. They, they haven't exactly won the war. You know, maybe Rob's gone, but Stannis is still out there, you know, we maybe have better insight than Cersei or even Tywin, but Roose isn't exactly, you know, like... Not, not the most trustworthy uh, ally. Exactly. <laughs> uh, something still... Balon has still not been handled. Maybe he's not a current threat, but Dorne is not extra friendly now, you know? So I still feel like they're... The Lannisters and maybe the Seven Kingdoms are in dire straits, you know? Maybe not... Each of... The kingdoms of the Seven Kingdoms maybe isn't in dire straits, but the Seven Kingdoms as a unit, I don't know how much longer it's going to last, you know? 
Well, that's a good point to bring up, especially because, again, this episode is all about setup. It's setting up a bunch of different arcs and new plot lines. And so what's being set up here is how the Lannisters are going to face these challenges without Tywin. Will they tear themselves apart? And without Tyrion as well. Will they tear themselves apart? Will they, you know, band together? Will they be able to hold on? That's a big open question. But one of the other new threats that is less obvious and is less apparent is something that we discussed in the preview episode that's become apparent from the trailer, showing that the faith seems to be getting a little more powerful. And our first inkling of that is with this next scene, or not the next scene, but this later scene. We're sticking in King's Landing for all the King's Landing plots, which is Cersei coming face-to-face with Lancel and his father, Kevin. And now remember, Kevin is Tywin's brother. Kevin is Tywin's only living brother, his other three brothers long since dead, or his other two brothers long since dead, rather. And so this is an interesting, it's a bubbling up new threat. The faith is gaining power, and no one wants to be on the wrong side of religious zealots. It's a very important thing for a ruler to keep in, keep in mind, the, the way the winds are blowing in terms of how the faithful are believing and how they're feeling. Uh, so that is something that we really, that is a new threat for Cersei to deal with, and maybe one she doesn't really see yet. Any any thoughts on that, Sean? The the power of the faith and maybe the rise there? What did you think about Lancel's transformation and and about his return? He, you can even tell that he's a different guy, partly because it's a younger actor and he's gotten a lot bigger. He's, he's does not wearing that wig. I assume it was a wig. He's not wearing that wig anymore. He looks different, but what do you think? I, I thought it was interesting. I, I, I'm kind of thinking along the lines of... Uh... Uh, Dantos, was that the name of the knight that Sansa saved? Yes, Dantos the Red, yes. A relatively minor character, popped up in a couple scenes, kind of like Lancel, right? And then goes away for a long time, and then comes back interacting with the main character significantly. Hmm, you know, maybe this wasn't just some side throwaway character, maybe he has a bigger role to play. Although, Dantos didn't last very long. (laughs) (laughs) We'll see what happens with Lancel, but another neat, I want to call it a reveal there, you know, was uh, especially because they set us up a little bit by what they show us in the previously on. They're like, hey, remember that scene when Robert's hunting and Lancel's giving him wine? Yeah. Lancel and Cersei in this meeting here, you know, he's like, kind of like, I'm not that same person. She's, I don't know what you're talking about. (laughs) That didn't happen. (laughs) Right. And I don't know if that's supposed to imply that she just encouraged him to get him drunk and maybe she did that all the time and was hoping eventually he'd screw up. Maybe that particular time there was something in the wine. Maybe Robert got too drunk too fast, didn't totally have his wits about him because Lancel and or Cersei, quote unquote, poisoned the wine. You know, maybe not some deadly poison that killed him instantly, but something that maybe got him more intoxicated than he normally could handle. Well, here's where I can't remember if this was explained in the show or not. In the books, it's made clear that he was given strong wine, which is like triple strength. Okay. So okay. yeah, he just basically they just got him really drunk. There yeah. wasn't. Uh, it's possible the show did it differently. That, that's that's a small gap in my carryover from show to book, but I suspect it was basically the same thing. Um, and even if it wasn't that particular time, I just still can't help but wonder if Cersei just did it all the time. Every time he goes hunting, give him lots of strong wine or whatever, you know. Well, like, she she knew that this was a particularly important time because of the the threat to herself and the, the way things were shaping up. But let's not get too far off tangent there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but so the other, th- but the, other, the other thing is that Cersei would talk that way, I guess, is because she's worried about who's listening. Even though Varys is apparently gone, she might, mm-hmm. she still has that kind of, 
always be careful what you're saying in this castle. You never yeah. know who could be listening, even though we're in our own chambers, etc. So she's just kind of got that same... It's, it's almost still, a modern sensibility. Like, you never know who's recording you. It's you know? still giving Lancel the point, too. Like, this isn't a thing you can use against me. Mm-hmm. No one knows but me and you, and I'm not going to admit to it. So don't try, you know? Yeah. Well, here's a thought I want to put into your head and get your reaction to. What happens a lot of times with people who become religious is they feel guilty over things they've done before. And he has two major things that he feels guilty for. One is for his part in, in Robert's death. The other is that he committed incest with his own... And adultery. Aunt, and adultery yeah. with his aunt. Right. So those are two... And Cersei does not want either of those things yeah. coming out. That would be very bad. So you've got this guy that now, if he swears to tell the truth under some circumstances, what's going to come out? It's, it's, it's very dangerous. I feel like Cersei should kill him. Not like I think he deserves to die, but knowing Cersei's character, her position, her power, and his threat... It should be nothing to just have this guy killed. She she can go kill fifteen infants. You know? <laughs> uh, but people knew that people knew that she did that. They found out, sort of, or right. rather that, or that's kind of implied that Joffrey had a lot to do with that. Yeah, yeah. Regardless, I don't think she should have any more problem with having this this guy killed. And she has strong motivation. Maybe it's just a matter of. Can't you do it without getting caught or whatever? Right, because that would add another thing to her list of kinslaying is highly yeah. looked down upon in, in Westeros. It's one of the worst things you can do. So let's move on to another part of King's Landing. We have another scene that involves different characters. We have the potentially very dangerous, potentially younger, more beautiful queen to cast aside Cersei, and that's Marjorie. And in fact, Marjorie alludes to putting Cersei aside in this scene. But first, we're introduced to... Sir Loras uh, having some uh, sexy time with Olivar. Olivar, if you remember, is the same character that is basically Littlefinger's second-in-command. He seems like he may have taken over for Roz after Roz was killed, as Roz had you know, ascended to a much higher position, to a management job, basically. Olivar seems to be a bit of a manager, but he also is, you know, so to speak, on the menu as he was for Oberyn Martell, even though he said he wasn't on the menu. But Oberyn being Oberyn, he basically declared, no, you're on the menu. So, you, you know, he was on the menu. <laughs> uh, so we've seen this character a few times. He's another very minor character, but he seems to be getting a little more of a role this season, possibly. This is one of those things where I'm out of my depth on. This character does not exist in the books. No idea what's coming for him, so don't think that anything I say has any hidden message to it, because I really don't know what to predict besides some of the things I talked about in the preview episode. Now, so so one thing that Marjorie accuses Loris's, Loris of is being not careful enough. Hey, look, you're being a little flagrant here. Everyone's going to find out about these relationships, and Loris just kind of brushes it off. He's like, everybody knows already. Yeah, I... Uh... I kind of see both sides. I, I feel like Marjorie, even if he's correct, that everyone knows, I still think Marjorie's right, that you need to keep up the show. Just you know? in case. Yeah. <laughs> uh, especially because you don't necessarily want other people to stop keeping up their shows, you know, among other reasons. But right now, it's easy for someone to pretend they don't know. You know, the horse is like, what? What do you mean? You can't say that. Bring me proof. But if Loris just does it out in the open, then someone might be obliged to take action about it. Too many witnesses, potentially, as well. Too many people. The rumors are too big. So that could be something he's faced with. 
but more in the in the meantime, Marjorie raises some other points about them. He they discuss their own pending situations with regards to the Lannisters. Now, Loras is, thinks to himself, he's you know he's he's kind of optimistic in a sense that he doesn't have to marry Cersei now, and but he says there's not much you can do about that, Marjorie. You're basically she's your mother-in-law, and that's how it's going to be. And Marjorie drops the old. Perhaps, and yeah. Laura says perhaps, and she <laughs> says perhaps. So already, this is hinting at Marjorie taking action against Cersei right along the lines of this pro- uh, that prophecy: a younger, more beautiful queen casting her down. And Marjorie's pretty much openly talking about doing this, about getting rid of Cersei, pushing her aside. It doesn't necessarily mean killing her, but getting her maybe taking her down a peg something what do you think what do you see there yeah i I was curious what what she had in mind there i didn't i didn't know if it meant she was going to push the marriage with loris after all uh and (laughs) say she'd say that was her plan how would she do that maybe she thinks she can manipulate tom and that much Uh, i don't know i'm not sure what she's got up her sleeve i'm interested to see Maybe somehow she, I don't know, doesn't even... I, I assume she wants to marry Tom. I mean, maybe she doesn't want to marry Tom because she's like in love with Tom, but she wants to be the queen, you know? She, yes, yes. Uh, but uh, I'm not sure what she thinks. I guess if she's... Joffrey can be poisoned, so can Cersei, or... You know, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know, we'll see. But in, in any case, all these... There's, there's Just like the rest of the episode, this is more setup. We have a lot of setup there. We have this conflict between Cersei and Marjorie, which has been built brewing for a couple seasons, but now it's a little more brought to the forefront as these two both have more agency. Tywin isn't going to be there to stop them from fighting as much, and the Queen of Thorns supposedly has, has left King's Landing already as well. Although the trailer does seem to hint at her returning, but under, the, what, under what circumstances or when, I have no idea, and I wouldn't really want to guess at that anyway. So let's move on to another location. The As much as Marjorie could be the younger, more beautiful queen to cast her down, it could be Daenerys, obviously, is another option. And so we go to Essos next. Before we get to Daenerys, though, we get two characters who are heading to Daenerys. And this was a major reveal. Some people saw it coming because... You know, Varys and Tyrion start going to the next other continent to go to Essos. And, well, you know, just trying to keep all the plots together, where else would they be going other than to Daenerys? It just makes sense. There's not a lot of other options. Is that kind of what you saw? I mean, I was considering they might go to Dorne. I was considering they might go to Braavos. Uh, I, I really wasn't sure. I wasn't sure if they were going to stay together. Uh, right. But, but uh, you guessed at least this possibility. Uh, yeah, yeah, I I didn't. I don't know if I thought it was the most likely, but I certainly thought I was in the top three. You know. And, but they basically come out and state that that's what the goal is. Illyrio talks about you know a better ruler, someone with great bloodlines, as someone who you know has the power to rule and the, you know the the ability to do so, and who is a standout. And Tyrion says, "Good luck finding him." And Varys, of course, makes it quite clear who he's talking about by saying, "Who said anything about him?" And, but Tyrion still needs some convincing, doesn't he? He's, he's looks like he's almost potentially drinking himself to death. And, uh, of course, he did just kill his own father. He's lost his home. He killed his, his ex-lover. He's, and he's just been floating in a box. Probably not in but, the best physical shape or mental shape or any shape in yeah. the first place, just considering his conditions of late. Yeah, so he's had a lot of time to just, nothing to do but sit and think about what he's done and what the rest of his life is going to be like. And, and he basically seems to conclude that his le- the rest of his life is pointless, it's meaningless, and that he may as well die. And there's a few comedic moments that are also kind of sad, but 
It's important to remember a few things about this scene. We have, this is the same location that Daenerys is first seen at in the first season with Viserys, uh, right before her marriage to Khal Drogo. This is Illyrio's manse. Apparently Illyrio isn't there. <laughs> I'm not sure if they're just not going to bother using him in the show at all, or if he's going to pop up later, but it looks like they may just not use him. He's a busy um, man. He can be elsewhere. That's true. And Varys drops a few lines like Westeros needs to be saved from itself and how, you know, the him and some other guys looked at, realized that Robert Baratheon was going to be a disaster. So does this say to you something about what Varys has been doing all along? Yeah, I've always been suspicious of Varys, but I've been suspicious of everyone. So I've just been taking him at his face, which is he's in it for the realm. He's in it for the kingdom, you know. Uh, I don't exactly know how to find what the realm is. I don't know if he means the seven kingdoms or the people of the seven kingdoms, <laughs> the stability of the, or the people of the world. I also don't know for sure what he thinks is good, you know, like having a stable king versus having well-fed people versus having a productive society or a free society. Uh, something that has occurred to me is that uh, a challenge that Danny keeps having to face that the leaders of Westeros don't is slavery. You know, they're they're ostensibly, I think, Westeros society's progressed a little farther as far as justice least, and freedom At least goes, in that but, regard, yeah. Yeah. Um, but, yeah uh, the quote is, the, the old gods and the new find abomination to be a slavery, something like that. So, or, I don't a slavery to be an abomination. <laughs> so that <backwards. laughs> uh, I don't expect this to be a direction that they go, but, I mean, I, I don't think it's, like, crazy to imagine if Vara shows up to, uh, is it Marine? Where is Danny at now? Danny is at Marine, yes. Marine? And uh, they still have a long way to go to get there, by the way. And he's and he's got this idea in his mind. I'm going to get Danny and go back and save Westeros. And you might get to Marine and be like, "We need to save, stay here and save Marine. <laughs> this city and all the surrounding cities have slavery. This is what we need to conquer, you know." Or at least use it as sort of practice for yeah, bigger yeah. challenges in King's Landing, where she's going to be ruling potentially, potentially an entire continent rather than just a city with some local cities that are, you know, involved in the politics. It's going to be a much larger scale of things to deal with. And something that Tyrion said, or rather, that something that Varys says to Tyrion is that she's going to need men of talent, which, of course, Varys has selected Tyrion to be one of these men of talent. We all know that Tyrion is, of course, very talented. Right now, he kind of feels worthless and suicidal, perhaps. But... I'm kind of guessing that he won't stay that way. So what we can maybe expect to see is Tyrion maybe coming along a little bit more, maybe getting coming around on this idea, and we'll see. Um, but what what is very clear, and I like how they make this segue in the show, is they immediately move on to Daenerys, and they show the kind of problems that she's having. The kind of problems that Tyrion and or Varys would be great at helping her solve and that's these problems of you know a shadowy uh, a shadow movement you know this rebellion behind the scenes kind of trying to get a foreign populace to behave <laughs> so to speak and all these challenges of ruling that danny not only hasn't faced in her own because of her own lack of experience and age but that pretty much none of her counselors have faced either she's got characters like hisdar and gray worm and Barristan helping her, but these are these are mostly soldiers. And well, Hisdar is a local, and he's he's useful because he 
has local knowledge and is tied into the culture. But Barristan and Grey Worm, these are soldiers first, bodyguards and, and fighters. They're not politicians. They don't have these kind of skills. You can really see the fit for Danny needing this kind of skill. What do you what do you think, maybe uh, to, to put it to you this way, what do you think that De, uh, Tyrion and Varys will mostly be able to do for her, assuming that's what, what happens? I'll say th- this is a, a thought that I've had, is that they can obviously be very helpful to her, but one thing is she's got to accept their help. I think that we saw her interacting with someone that I feel has been presented as a... Uh, tactful character uh i want to say politically minded (laughs) right and she just uh, wrote him off it's like i'm a queen i don't have to play your games go no i'm not gonna do it stop asking me you know she's a little stubborn she's a little quick to judge very and maybe understandably she's got a lot on her plate she doesn't have experience with this she's trying to assert herself she probably gets questioned a lot it's important she maybe needs to kind of go over the top as like a young girl trying to rule these people a foreigner she has all these obstacles you know um but uh she seems to her first instinct seems to be to smash the obstacles rather than to work with them or work around them or find another solution you can't just always smash through she's got a very like dragon attitude it's like no i'm stronger i destroy this that's they will they will submit to me i want to be understanding too i don't necessarily think she's wrong but on a certain level and that's kind of a lot of what this show is all about is noble ideals aren't always that easy to put into place some kind of compromise. You have to recognize that whatever you think is right might cause trouble in the short run. Whatever you think is right, everyone else doesn't think is right. Even if you're right, you can't just force people to think what you think or to immediately change. And uh, I just think when that, uh, I don't want to call him diplomat, you know, came and said, hey, great news. We got a council. We got rid of slavery. That's, that was his dar, yeah. His dar, yeah. yeah. Things are going fine. But, you know, they just want to have these gladiator pits. No, no gladiator pits. Forget that. No, get out of my face with yeah, that. And she's like, just oh. like adamant. She's no, like, no, 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 no. And uh, even uh, Dario, he's, he's, he's savvy enough to wait till later. You know what I mean? He's like, look, why don't we go ahead and have this thing? And he kind of gives his reasons. I don't even know if his reasons were the best reasons. His reasons are basically like, Hey, I I dug it. <laughs> you know? yeah, it was like it worked for me. I uh, rose from from nothing because of the fight. Uh, That's why I am where I am. But he knew knew quote unquote knew better than to bring that up in the council meeting. What if Varus or Tyrion had been there in a council meeting? Is everyone just gonna be like, Ooh, I don't want Danny to yell at me. I better not tell her what I really think. You know what I mean? Var- like, Varus is, a, is a, an expert at knowing like how to talk to angry, powerful people. I think that's his, yeah. one of his great skills. He kind of good. At, he, you saw how he kind of. Got in the middle of Robert and Ned when they were arguing about murdering Daenerys, yeah, and yeah. Varys was kind of like, "Look, let me let me just assuage you both," and kind of that's that's something yeah. he's really skilled at. Tyrion isn't as good at that, but Tyrion yeah. is good at knowing, you know, what the right moves are to make and and understanding, you know, that you can't just bash things to make them submit to you. I think it's it's fun to think about how that meeting might have gone if Varys and Tyrion had been there, and because I'm, she was pretty quick to cut him off. And and her manner of doing it too doesn't leave a lot of leeway for Tyrion and Varys to say anything. Once she's like, "How many times do I have to say no before you stop asking me?" Yeah. And then Varys is like, "Oh, but my queen, how about this reason?" Yeah. You know, <laughs> he he can't do with it at that point. Varys yeah. will. I think Varys would quickly figure this. Is what you're saying out, he would realize. Don't challenge her in front of other people. Wait till he yeah. he would. That's the kind of thing he would figure out. He might make the mistake once or twice and then figure it out. But, but Tyrion. Tyrion's Tyrion a little like more. Jump, you know. <laughs> Tyrion's a little more blunt. He's not as good at softening his speech. 
speech, yeah, that might be, he's a little more uh, to the point, direct yeah. about I'm it. not saying this is, it's bad, but I'm just curious how it'll all go. It seems like it's this good fit, but I wonder how good the fit will really be, you know? And maybe that's part of what is good about Tyrion and Varys. Varys will, like, see this coming beforehand. He'll talk to Daenerys before they even have me. He'll already know that they want the gladiator pits and set her up for that, you know? Uh, and maybe Tyrion won't be in those meetings. He'll be off <laughs> negotiating with someone else in a different room or whatever, you know? But uh, Well, the other thing about this is to keep in mind is that you, you pointed out, smartly pointed out, that Daria waited to talk to her about the fighting pits. Now, part of this was that she was frustrated that he kept asking, but she was mostly upset about the murder of White Rat, who was apparently overseeing the bringing down of the giant bronze harpy from the Great Pyramid, which is a pretty cool scene. But he immediately goes to a brothel of some kind and, you know, just, just gets some cuddles and a song and then gets his throat cut by a son of the harpy who are, that's the group, the shadowy group that I alluded to, the, the, this, this kind of rebellious group fronted by old powers in in marine that are not accepting of Daenerys's rule but they know they can't openly challenge her so they have to wear masks and you know do things in the shadows but they're also making a direct threat to her they have left they left a mat the mask there on his body yeah. so they it's another like a terrorist group claiming credit for um, a terrorist act and Daenerys is very upset about this, understandably, and she doesn't want to simply give in to these murderers. She wants to, like we've said a few times, she wants to fight back. And what she does, rather than, you know, this is a typical using the stick rather than the carrot, instead of trying to find a way to make peace between these dissidents, she just one-ups them. She says, well, we're going to take White Rat's body and we're going to give him a proper burial in one of their temples. And that is just... That's, of course, going to inflame some people because this is religion we're talking about. This is very personal, emotional stuff. And they're going to take this as a huge insult. And I can only imagine that this is only going to make things worse. I don't know. Again, this is, this is you know, out there different from the books. So uh, I'm not making a guess based on what I think is coming in the books. I'm just trying to see what I think the show is going to do. And I think that seems to be what's being set up here is that Danny's going to kick the hornet's nest a few times before she realizes she doesn't know where the hornet's nest is, so she can't just break it down. Yeah. Uh, even if she did know where it was, you know, we all know that is not any way to deal with a hornet's nest. You don't <laughs> smash it. Although she, she needs, you need to burn it, which is, you know, something she's kind of equipped for, but <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't, again, it doesn't help to, to have the fire if you don't know what to burn. Uh, so what, do you, what are your thoughts on this whole situation, Sean? Uh, yeah, I thought that was another thing, too, by the way. It's, uh, it wasn't until toward the end of the episode, but as long as we're on Danny's storyline here. Yeah, we're just trying uh, to stay one location at a time. I thought it was neat when she Dario made that comment, which in front of other people, I can imagine how she would have lashed out. But in private, you know, he's like, a dragon, queen of dragons are no dragons. You know, yeah. it's not a queen. Uh, so, you know, we see her go to visit the dragons, and it doesn't seem to go well. And uh, They're all wild. And- I a thought Angry. that I had from that was that I feel like a lot of times, you know, we talk about the Targaryens and how they took over, and it's, ah, uh, it's just because they had dragons. That's the only reason they were able to conquer. Oh, they just had dragons, you know. Well, <laughs> wait a minute. We see what the dragons are like. Maybe there's a reason they had the dragons and other people didn't, you know. <laughs> just because they had dragons. Having the dragons, and maybe that's something Danny needs to realize, too. She has to 
earn it, if you will. And if or whether or when she can, I don't know. I, I'm not sure how to see this playing out. Is she just magically one day the dragons are going to listen to her? Or are they like <laughs> feed off her strength? Maybe she has to let them go free first. I started to think that maybe it's sort of a symbol that this power she wants to have, this desire she has, positive desires, like, you know, the, the path to good is paid with evil, you know? Like, mm-hmm. she's going to have to make this compromise. These dragons might win in the battle, but in the meantime, they're going to burn innocent kids and kill the goats and upset the farmers and all this stuff. She might yep. have to take the good with the bad to get what she wants. If she has big, lofty goals, she might have to make big, lofty sacrifices. I'm not sure. I'm not sure how we're supposed to read this or where it's going to go, but I feel like the the dragons are have got to be key to her success, but she doesn't really have control over them, and I wonder how she's going to get control. How did the Targaryens do it in days past? However they did it, is it possible to do it again? Mm. She, does, she doesn't really have any other allies or knowledge, or does she? Is some new character going to appear that can help her, you know? It's a good point. She doesn't have, it's not like she has her family members she can talk to about, yeah. hey, what did we, how did we do this? And they, of course, they didn't know either. The dragons were dead then. Yeah. But she might be like, hey, do we have any books or anything? <laughs> <laughs> but she, I wanted to go back up just a little bit to what Dario was talking to her. And Dario did handle it well. Dario does seem to be understanding her well. He, he, he spoke to her responsibilities. And that's a way to get her to make act, to take action is that when you challenge her on, you're not doing a good enough job here, that will works. Because she is the, the shoulder, the burden type of character. She's like, she takes responsibility for all these slaves and for all these people that she's in charge of. She feels like their mother, the Misa whole thing. And she takes that seriously. And a lot of people don't like that aspect of her and think that she's just, in a lot of ways, making things worse. But set that aside for a minute. That's because we're not discussing whether or not it's good or bad that she's doing these things. We're just talking about how she how she feels responsible for them, and she whether or not you agree with her actions. I think you have to agree that she feels responsible, whether she should or not is another question. But she definitely does, and Dario knows that, and he is able to speak to that. And he got her to take action by saying, "Look, you're not being responsible. You're not a dragon queen without dragons. You're not. You know, look, some of us." The fighting pits were good for some of us. Look at how it made me what I am today. You know, maybe you should reconsider some of these things. And it seems to have an impact on her. She seems to honestly reconsider a bit. She doesn't yell at Dario or tell him he's wrong. She yeah. immediately goes to check on the dragons and immediately seems to start working She might on have even yelled at him and told him he's wrong and then gone to see the dragons also. <laughs> yeah, we didn't see whether or not she did, but uh, a lot of times in a moment you, like, respond negatively but then sleep on it and realize, you know, maybe they're right, you know. But there's another interesting, very subtle parallel there. We have Dario talking about how he was a self-made man and how he rose from, you know, being the whelp of, of a prostitute that didn't want him and how he grew it into beyond. He's a self-made man. And Varus was just talking about, to Tyrion, about how, hey, some, some of you guys, you know, you're born with wealth and power. Some people work their way up from the bottom. Yeah, yeah, know? that's true. And, yeah. and that's, a little, that's a little sneaky catch there, I think, but, uh, paralleling Varus's attitude with someone like Dario and how these kind of characters need to shed some light or help Daenerys see from her... I mean, she's been through some stuff. She's been through some harsh things, but she's still been in charge pretty much the whole time ever since uh, she married Khal Drogo and kind of got her own agency there. She has been sheltered, despite be going through the red waste, despite going through this thing. She's never, she's never been a common person. She's never seen this. So she's starting to see some of these things through some of these characters that are important to her, through Dario and perhaps later through Varys and other characters, if they ever get to meet. We'll see 
how these things all play out and how they maybe give her some new perspective. And that might make her understand that you can't just smash things. You can't just hope to rule over a foreign population with, with force, especially if you aren't able to control the main weapon of force that you have in your, in your arsenal, which is the dragons. Okay, let us move on to the next location, which is the Vale. Let's talk about the Vale. We've got a couple of different things happening here where we see a little bit of comedy, which is underlied by something a little gross. And what I mean by that is we see that uh, Sweet Robin is trying to be, they're trying to teach him how to fight, and he appears to be quite hopeless at it. <laughs> it also comes out that he's 13, which means that a couple years, you know, at most a year or two has gone by. That means he was being breastfed as an 11 or 12 year old by Lysa, which is pretty creepy. And it show, kind of also speaks to why he's, you know, maybe kind of helpless. He was so mothered too much, wasn't, you know, wasn't allowed to go out and into the world and, you know, skin his knees and get dirty and, and kind of get a little toughened up for, for good reasons in some cases. He is very frail and has these health problems. But Littlefinger raises the issue. Now that really matters. Sometimes all you need is a good name. And as he says that to Bronzion Royce, who is... Uh, you know, more of a, a fighter type. He's an ancient, uh, he comes from an ancient line. The Royces are very powerful and noble and have been around a long time. And he's a traditionalist, so he expects the, the Lord to be a fighter and to be a symbol. But Littlefinger reminds him that, you know, sometimes all you need is that name. And he kind of, that kind of makes me think a little bit because Littlefinger himself has acquired a name. Mm-hmm. And he and he and he, he told the council how he needed to have this name in order to make to make the moves he did with Lysa to bring her into the fold, and that's kind of all Lysa had too. She she had this name and power, but she's no skill whatsoever. In fact, you could say that she was lacking in skill in quite a few ways. So a lot of different things going on, and of course, the, perhaps the character whose name is particularly important isn't going by her real name, Elaine is really Sansa, of course, uh, with her new look, her darker hair, and she's got a new attitude as well, and she seems to have a lot more agency. So, Sean, what are your thoughts on the situation in the Vale, especially with regards to Littlefinger and uh, what his what his thoughts might be for her and for some of these Vale lords who seem to be, you know, they have their own ideas about things? Yeah, I thought it was a neat scene. Um, we see uh, Littlefinger definitely is very adept at how he's managing his relationships he it's important for royce for you know the soldiering of the boy all right let's train him in soldiering and it may not be going well but hey we're not going to give up he still has a name you know mm-hmm. and uh we see him his talk with sansa and he which by the way that is the thing i'm wondering is where are they going uh <laughs> but uh <laughs> she but she you know she says uh you know he she says hey you told him we were going this place and we're going the other direction he's like well do you think I trust them? And she's like, well, do you trust all the, your carriage driver and someone else? And I felt like Littlefinger's like, hey, good call. She understands. Hey, everyone's a suspect or whatever, you know. She's mm-hmm. playing the game well. She knows what uh, to be thinking about. We're, we're, yeah. Her mind's in the right place, yeah. The, uh, but I still did make me wonder, because uh, they said they were heading west. And I guess they're pretty far east in the first place, so they could be going almost anywhere. But, but I'm still not sure where they could go that he thinks that Cersei won't get or won't be able to reach them, that would be <laughs> called west and not north or south. Like, I thought if they were going to Dorne or to the Wall, you know, maybe that's out of Cersei's reach. But then, she, 
I I could be wrong, but I would have said, but we're going north or we're going south. Maybe they have to go west first no matter what. I don't know. I'm curious where they're going. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> I guess we'll wait and see. And, of course, we get this uh, humorous passing by of the carriage that they're in, and you just want to yell, look out, <laughs> yeah. look out the window, because there's Brienne and Podrick, and Brienne is just depressed. She's kind of hopeless and aimless, and she kind of is taking it out on Podrick a little bit, saying, hey, I don't need you. You know, I'm not even a knight. You know, you can't be a squire. I'm not a knight, all this stuff. She's just venting and and doesn't know whether she can succeed in her quest she has no idea where to look for Sansa she feels rejected because Arya didn't want to go with her and that was you know it was such a close thing for her she probably thought she was actually going to maybe complete this important part of her quest and then it slipped through her fingers and seems gone forever also her head's probably ringing she just got smashed up pretty good by the (laughs) hound right (laughs) it's a good point she's probably aching and and in a lot of pain you're right (laughs) that can't be helping and they don't have horses anymore (laughs) (laughs) so that but but again it's just more setup we're just showing okay well this is where brienne and pod left off they they lost their major you know they lost a big part of what they were trying to do but there's still something else out there for them to do. And, hey, it just passed by them <laughs> in about, like, a couple hundred yards or something. You know, there's another thought that I had, by the way. While they're conversing and watching uh, Robin fight, a note is brought to Littlefinger. He opens it up, reads it, puts it away. It doesn't seem to really react, just continues business as usual. But he did. There was a note they got. I wonder what that was. I wonder if it was, like, if that note was some something to do with why they were heading west. I wonder if that was Tywin Lannister is dead. If that was, like, the word getting around. Or if it's just showing us little fingers, like, in charge of running things and keeping informed. And I hadn't considered the, whether the news about Tywin, had, they didn't broach that subject at all. They, they mentioned it at the they? wall. At the wall, yes, definitely. He said... Uh, Stannis was yeah. fired up about that. And so, <laughs> and, and that's that That was the thing that made me think, oh, maybe that's that was Littlefinger finding out, too. Word's got to spread. They're, they're having a meeting. People from around the Seven Kingdoms showed up to the funeral or whatever, right? So the word's got to be spreading. Yeah, but, you, think, uh, you, you might think they already know, but if they don't, that is a very good guess at what yeah. the news might be. It could be something else. But right. it might be but someone. I, I, have, from, I don't know. might be someone in Harrenhal. Hey, Lord, come rule us. <laughs> <laughs> right? They would signed, have to go west to get to Signed Harrenhal. the ghosts. <laughs> <laughs> so we see, again, like I said, this is more setup. We're, we're seeing Brienne is starting to get a new idea of what, you know, she's kind of resetting her, her energy and saying, hey, what am I going to do now? Where am I going to go? And Podrick starts to kind of gets her turned around a bit and, and, and kind of talks to her the right way and, and, and kind of starts to point her in the right direction and make her see that there is still things for her to do. And we can see from the trailers that there is plenty for her to do. They appear in the trailers a bit. There seems to be some fighting. She seems to be uh, fighting some people. So certainly some action scenes with Brienne coming up. We look forward to that. But for now, there's not a whole lot to know other than we just we're just getting ready to see what's happening. It's really just the ball is just starting to roll. So let's move on again. Let's go to our final location, which has several subplots, and that is the wall, where there's several things going on. And we'll start with the first scene at the wall, which is where we see John and Gilly and Sam and Ollie. One little tidbit there is we see there's there's clearly no major hard feelings there from John. Uh, Ollie being the one to kill a grit, he understands. He doesn't seem to have any uh, any sort of problem with the fact that the kid did what he did. And he seems to be training him. I like this little plot line. I like that Ollie is coming along, that he's learning to fight. I like that they did this character. It's something that's not in the books. I think it's a good change. It kind of makes sense to me that there would be a, a few refugees. 
which they do have in the book. There's refugees in the books for some of these wildlings, but they and a few of them become characters, but none of them are little children. None of them are boys who had their parents killed by the wildlings. That's a new thing. I think that's pretty cool. What do you think of that character? Do you think what do you think any ideas for what might be in store for him? Like I said, not in the books, no yeah, idea. I don't know. I think it's interesting. Uh, I also what did uh, you know? I love the show a lot, especially for the sake of this podcast. I watch it two or three times, you know, and uh, new things come into my mind. In general, when you rewatch something, especially if it's something that's rich and deep in the first place, like Game of Thrones is, you miss. Things. You start off mm-hmm. right, mm-hmm. just getting the superficial characters' plots, you know. Go back again, you start to get emotions behind it, stuff going on in the background, what they're wearing, little details, you know. And I was specifically thinking about that. Is John kind of being a little tough on him? Is he being like, you know, he's like, keep your shield off, you know, kept hammering at him. It's like, seemed upset with him even. And, uh, but I, I don't feel like he was necessarily like, I'll get you, kid, kill my girlfriend. Kind of, it was like, look. If you're going to kill my girlfriend, you better be a freaking great warrior now. <laughs> Keep your shield up. You know, I'm not wasting my time on you. Also, there so. could be a little of John has lost so many friends recently. He's like, look, you are, you know, like you're, you're I'm not losing you, too. Or yeah, something like yeah. that. I don't know how fond he feels of this kid, but I, I got I get the sense that if he doesn't feel fondness for him, he's he's developing it. Um, of course, the Agrit thing might might be a barrier there, but. I agree with you. It doesn't seem like he's mad at him at all. He seems like a, you're, you know, you're, damn it, kid, do the right things here, stay alive, you know? Yeah. <laughs> kind of like a, like a tough love kind of thing, you know? He's not, he's not like an Alice or Thorn type where he just, like, shames him and insults him into doing better. He's, you know, just bottom line, you got to get your shield up or you're going to die. <laughs> and, you know, maybe John is uh, approaching it better, but you on some level can see what Alice or Thorn. On some level, he's being tough because, hey, it's tough. You need to get used to it being tough, you know? Yeah. <clears throat> and you see what, you see some of the, well, there's a question that you had from last season is what happened to Alistair Thorne. You can see that he's got a major limp. Yeah. And yep. that's a big question. In this, in this opening scene at the wall, <coughs> a, a major question is of the current lack of leadership. And we, re, we hear that Alistair Thorne is up for the job. He wants to be Lord Commander. We also hear that there's a guy named Sir Dennis Malister who is up for the job, and he is the commander of... Uh, the Shadow Tower, and that is to the far west. And we haven't seen this character. I assume we will. He was cast, although I know the actor died during filming. He was an older man, so I don't know if his scenes even made it into the show or not. But he will... Basically, the question of leadership is open right now. They don't know who's going to take over, and there's some tension. Gilly is really worried about what whoever the new leader is going to do to her, because she's kind of not supposed to be there and she also knows that Janos Slint doesn't like her and I assume that's partly because he's (laughs) she saw him being a coward and doesn't want that news to get out so he's kind of keeping an eye on her but also just because he's just kind of crappy and uh he doesn't want you know he's a stickler for these rules even though he doesn't follow them himself (laughs) about because he's a coward he was big on the you know trying to incriminate Jon Snow for things he did and and so he's of course going to you know, outwardly be like, you can't have a woman around here and all that. So that's a developing situation. We don't know how Gilly and, and Sam, uh, how that whole thing is going to work out. And I'm sort of surprised. Yeah, I'm sort of surprised that Alistair and Thorne are friends at all. It seems like Alistair would not put up with this man, you know. But maybe Janos Slint should get some credit. He Maybe he's not this great warrior, but he's from King's Landing. He knows how politicking works. He knows what Alistair Thorne wants to hear. He knows Alistair Thorne is concerned about power. 
says the right things. He was Lord Commander of the City Watch. You definitely don't get up there by being yeah. a complete idiot. You know, he did. He definitely did some stupid <laughs> things, but he can't be a complete moron. Yeah. He also, uh, you know, on some level, despite you know being caught in an act of cowardice, isn't in chains or beheaded. He must have said something right to someone. You know, whether or just didn't get caught. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but uh, yeah, I, I was. Kind of actually glad to see Alice Thorne still alive. I, it was unclear to me if he was dead, and I kind of appreciate his character in front of necessarily like him. I appreciate the what's the word the the drama that he creates in the scenario, you know. Yeah. But uh, and like a lot of characters, he's he's gray. He's got some good. He's still clearly got some good yeah. qualities. He was a great leader during the yeah. actual fighting. He's not a straight up bad guy. He's not an evil man. He, he's, he's not just, a yeah. good leader. He's not like a favorite, but he's still uh, he's kind of a jerk. Yeah. <laughs> but uh. The, I was going to say, uh, Jano Slint, I feel like, I need some more explanation. I don't understand how he's still walking around, much less <laughs> by the side of Alistair Thorne. And he's a baby murderer. You're kind of just, <clears throat> and, a, and a coward. You just kind yeah. of, he's just one of the characters that you're clearly supposed to root against. You know, there's a lot of great characters in the show and even more in the books, but this one is very, in terms of black and white, he's very... Some characters come side. around. Like, it's true, you never know. Jamie starts off like we were pre- presented as a, a king slayer and kills a kid or tries to, and sleeps <laughs> with his sister, and then we come around to like, wait, maybe he's a good guy? He's you know, a lot more likable than we first thought. Maybe Janice Slint is going to be the savior. Maybe he's going to ride a dragon with Danny in the battle. <laughs> <laughs> that would be quite the thing, wouldn't it? That would be, uh, wow. <laughs> that would really be something that the showrunners did on their own, wouldn't it? <laughs> I mean, I don't know what happens in the, in the books up to this point, but maybe George Martin's going to surprise us all. <laughs> well, big spoiler. Big spoiler. Janice Slint... <clears throat> To this point, does not ride a dragon in the book. <laughs> <laughs> Giving it away, Aziz. Sorry, folks. Everybody, you can all just take out your frustration on me. I just gave away the biggest surprise of the whole series. Now, immediately after this scene where they're kind of mill, there's a bunch of people in the yard. They're kind of all out of a bunch of different groups of people kind of walking around. You got Sam and Gilly, you got John and Ollie, you got uh, Thorn and Slint, and a couple other people just doing their thing. Melisandre appears. To get John and bring him before Stannis and Davos. And as they're riding up in the lift together, she gives this very awkwardly humorous, but also curious line. Are you a virgin? He pauses and says no, and she says good, and that's where she leaves it. What on earth do you think is going on there? Yeah, I don't know. I, uh, I'm curious... You know, if she can detect, you know, the theories are pretty strong that John is actually Targaryen blood, right? I wonder if she can detect that at all. I wonder if it matters to her whether or not he's a... I wonder if he, if he said yes, she'd be like, ah, guess I'm going to have to sacrifice him. Oh, you're not a virgin. Okay, good, good, good. I won't have to sacrifice you. Maybe we can hook up later. <laughs> I only sacrifice virgins. Yeah, yeah. That's, her th- that's her thing. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I think it's definitely interesting. Well, here's one thing that, again, this is not a prediction from the books. I don't know what is happening here, but what about the, what is the, one of the main things she did using sex as a device was to create these shadow creatures. Can you, what, what would she do with a shadow creature, a shadow baby, as we call them sometimes? If she, if that, maybe that's what she's got in mind is to like create one of these with John. I don't know if the the man creating it has any like we don't know how this magic works at all. We don't know yeah. like does there does the man creating providing this this you know the seed does that does it matter who this guy is? Does it you know does his blood impact it? Is it important who he is? Is it just she just needs somebody willing to do it? 
She yeah, ate. does the spirit baby do what she wants or what the man wanted? Or, you know, the great good Stannis wanted to kill Renly and it had the face of Stannis and so on. Yep. <laughs> Let's say that was the case. What would John's spirit baby do? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, you'd think that maybe he is you'd think that from Stannis's perspective, Stannis would want to send something after Roose Bolton, um, I would guess, but there's been no allusion to that. John might not care about that. Well, you'd think John certainly doesn't isn't happy with the Boltons, but it's also it's also question his vows. He's not supposed to sleep with Melisandre, he's not supposed to sleep with anybody. He slept with the grit. Uh, he's not supposed to marry Melisandre. John, yes, Sam brought that point up about how it was, you know, how that's not specifically outlawed. It doesn't it says fathering children. It doesn't say there's, as as our as a tw- Twitter uh, listener Vala Margulis pointed out, there's nothing in the as in the uh, Night's Watch vows about his fathering shadow babies. <laughs> I was gonna say, yeah, is there anything in his fathering shadow babies? <laughs> It says, I will father no children, but these aren't real, are those, do those count as children? I don't know. You need, well, that's one for the maesters. That would have been some foreshadowing if when they read their vows. Yeah. <laughs> and father no shadow babies. <laughs> Repeating as the giants charging them in the tunnel. <laughs> so, I, I don't really know who, there's a couple of possibilities, just imagine. John certainly got plenty of enemies out there, and, and of course the ones at the wall are, are one thing, but the ones that he can't get to are another. Do shadow babies have a range on them? I don't know. I don't know how any. We don't know how this magic works. But another possibility is what's going on north of the wall. Maybe she could send some, you know, one north to maybe take out some wilding target, or even the the, the three eyed crow could be. A, I don't know why she'd want to kill him, but he's out there. But not apparently not. Uh, not at this point, anyway. And although maybe she will become aware of him at some point. So that's that. Um, I don't know. That's a big open question. It's very interesting, and it could lead to some very, you know, it could, it, when we kind of veer off into supernatural territory like that, it's really hard to predict what's going to happen. So that's a big thing to keep our, keep our eye on. And there's been some allusions to some sort of maybe a relationship between these two, but that might be what the relationship is. It's more of just a, she doesn't seem interested in him as a lover. Or like, she doesn't, you don't ask that question as a way to flirt. <laughs> She's got something bigger in mind. She's thinking, you know, large scale. She's not thinking, oh, I might be able to get some here from, from handsome Kit Harrington. Uh, I don't think that's what this is about. Maybe that too. Maybe that too, yeah. Maybe she's also got that in mind. But I mean, and the more in the meantime, something we can, we can be a little more certain about is Stannis' plans. John is presented to Stannis, and Stannis makes it very clear what's happening. Two things. Mance needs to kneel, or he's getting burnt. Or actually, three things. Second of all, he wants the wildlings to fight for him one way or the other. Third of all, he's going after Roose Bolton. He's going after him soon. He's got the men. He's got the mercenaries he hired through, with, through the Iron Bank. He wants to supplement his army with wildlings because those are people that can carry weapons. That's an army. You know, those are, there's a lot of people that, have, that know how to fight. So Stannis is going to use what's, what the weapons that are at his disposal, use the men he's got. He's got to work with, his, work with what he's got, and what he's got is, a wild, is wildlings and mercenaries. And so that's what he's going to do what he's got to do. And, of course, but you can see that he's kind of working another angle here. He's, he's trying to get John involved somehow. He's talking about, hey, don't you want revenge? Don't you want to see, you know, I'm putting Roose Bolton's head on a spike. You know, don't you want to, like, help me out here? Yeah. <laughs> Those are your family's enemies. What do you think about that? I, uh, I feel like if John hasn't abandoned his post at the wall yet, he's not going to now. But that doesn't mean he can't help. Stannis still, just trying to convince Mance, or maybe convince other wildlings, even if Mance doesn't go along, which he ends up not going along. That was a 
a frustration that I have with this episode, which I don't know if it's this episode or the writing or the characters themselves. I'm not sure what to attribute it to, but it's like frustrated with Danny and how she handled things. <laughs> I was frustrated up here in the wall, too. I felt between Stannis and John and Mance, they should have come up with some better, some something better. They should have <laughs> coordinated. They, I feel like these are wise, experienced enough men with enough at stake, with enough understanding. I feel like Stannis is trying to decide how to conquer this land. And on some level, maybe he's even recognizing the threat of zombies. Certainly, there really is an army of 100,000 wildlings. i got to beat Bruce Bolton, and that's just the beginning. There's a lot at stake. There's a lot of men to coordinate. There's a lot of resources at hand. And he sends a 20-year-old kid to go negotiate with the leader of 100,000 men and gives him until sundown tonight. <laughs> yeah. hey, can't we just have till the end of the week? Yeah, that's, you know? tell Stannis, that's what I meant about Stannis clearly wanting to move quickly. He's, yeah. he, 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 I guess he's judged it and said, look, waiting might be a benefit to this, the chances of getting this army on my side, but I can't afford to wait. But, uh, but, but that's the lesser of two evils. The greater of two evils is Bruce Bolton is on the move. He knows I'm here. I can't wait. I can't wait. I got to move now, now, now. That's, I think he, he feels the sense of urgency. Davos seems to agree. And that's also just Stannis's his way. He's he's not a a guy who likes to wait. He's he's also very stubborn, and so is Mance. They're both very 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 stubborn men. And I also don't get me wrong. Understand he might need to be urgent, but I still feel like the difference between a day or two of negotiation. It's not like if they decide to leave. Forget. I'm not even going to take the time for this burning ceremony. We're leaving now. How quick are they going to get to Winterfell? You're still talking like I assume. A matter of weeks to get a whole army of men down to Winterfell, right? It might not take weeks, so, but it would take a little while. Yeah, but at least a week. Does yes, it, yes. Does it matter if they get there in seven days or it nine would, days? It depends on like, the route and the weather and all that. They yeah. have the King's Road, which makes for fast enough travel. And, and it may matter if they get there in seven or nine days, but I can't believe it matters more if they get there in seven or nine days than if they show up with 12,000 men or 112,000 men. You know, mm-hmm. seems like maybe I'm nitpicking. But I feel like he should have, there should have been some more discussion. It's same thing from Mance's perspective. I think when John comes to this, comes to him and said, hey, Stannis wants you to, and he's like, even if he needs to be stubborn, I can understand like the reasons why he might need to make this sacrifice, you know, as a martyr for his position or to keep the people together. I try to go through much of if-then scenarios, right? Let's say Mance does bend the knee and says, all right, I'll yield to you. My people will yield to you, and we're going to go fight Bruce Bolton. It's possible that when he does that, that half the wildlings are like, What? I can't believe you bent the knee. We're out of here. Forget this. We'll fight to the death. You could burn me alive. I don't care. But that still leaves 50,000 more men that are going to go along, you know? <laughs> Even if only 10% agree, that's still 10,000 more men in his army that he could have. That might be what Stannis is realizing, that he's like, yeah. some of these guys will join me no matter what Mance does. He yeah, might be right. That. There is a, the flip side. If, if Mance doesn't bend the knee, half of them might be like, what? I can't believe you killed your leader. We'll fight to the death to stop you. But the other half might be like, well, don't burn us at the stake. We'll, we wanted to go fight anyway. You know, let's go. So Yeah, you wonder if, if this if how well this will work. You see, because these wildlings, they saw him burn, and they saw how horrible it was. Yeah. Of course, John 
put an end to it, obviously. But there was that moment of, of panic, even though Mance... Mance accepted his death right away. The moment John walks into the room, Mance is like, yeah, I'm willing to die, basically. He doesn't he's say like, it. this is our last meeting. It doesn't have to be. Yeah, but it is. You yeah, know, he yeah. knows it. He's like, I'm not backing down. And I, he knows how important it is. He's like, look, I'm not going to be able to make you, Jon Snow, understand. Even though you were amongst us for a while, you're not going to understand why, how, how important this is. You don't understand the wildling psychology like I do. Yes, this is a tough spot I'm in. Yes, maybe my living... Uh, would have more value, but no, I don't think so. I think that the more important thing, I, the most, the best thing I can do for my people is to die standing, to not die kneeling or to not kneel and, and have my men go fight for Stannis. They may end up fighting for Stannis anyway. So that's the big question of whether Mance's plan works, but Mance is certain and isn't going to be talked out of it. I actually think Stannis kind of respects him for it. I think he, because he gives him one more <coughs> chance to kneel right before he's burned, and he's like, nah. And Stannis is kind of like, kind of standing, kind of gives him that look like, yeah, I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have bent the knee either. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I do think that. I, I think they're such interesting characters, and I, I think that's part of what adds to my frustration because I think that they, I think they have outs that don't even include sacrificing their integrity. That's part of my issue here. Is I think that Mance said, and I think we kind of knew. John kind of knew. John was or realized. John like thought it was about pride at first. Mance said, it's not about my pride, but what it is about is because first of all. I do think Mance has pride, but there's just things at stake that are bigger than that. This right. isn't about, I do have pride, John, but that's not what this is really about. What this is really about, I think Mance is trying to say, is saving my people. Okay, so let's say it's about saving your people. What happens if you get burned at the stake? Either your people are going to go fight with Stannis anyway, or they're going to die to the zombies, <laughs> right? That's you. I feel like that's the thing that keeps being forgotten. It's not like go fight Stannis or not go fight Stannis. It's die to the zombies or not die to the zombies. I think that's the bigger picture thing that's not my pride that wasn't being addressed. It was only, it's not about my pride, this is about my people not fighting for Roos. Wait a minute, it should be not fighting uh, against Roos. Fighting Roos, yeah. yeah. It should have been, this isn't about my pride, it's about saving my people from the zombies. How does he think that bending the knee or not is going to contribute to saving people from zombies. Well, here's one one thought I have on that, is that Stannis knows, and or Mance knows that Stannis knows that he is under the gun. He has to act. He has to take his army south. He can't hang around the wall for too long. So if the wildlings don't follow Stannis, I think Mance realizes that he's going to have to do something with them. He's going to have to let them do their own thing or just kind of hope they don't cause too much trouble, hope he can get as many of them to fight for them as possible. It's hard to imagine Stannis just trying to burn 50,000 wildlings yeah. like how could he even capture them all how could he even gather been, them together i've been thinking about this a lot uh uh i don't want to cut you off no that's fine thought, but yeah I, I this is probably the thing about the show that I, I i don't i want to say most bothered me but has also inspired the most kind of thought about the the characters and the actions that are going to happen because i one thing i started to decide is okay Mance dying especially this particularly gruesome death might keep his people united even in his death, right? One thing is if you... It was John's idea is, I'm going to go kill Mance, and then they'll just fall apart. No one's keeping them together. Yeah. This might be a way to keep them together even if even if he's gone. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Making this sacrificial death. One thing they can... He's a martyr now. Right, yeah. right. Becoming a martyr, right. Uh, so that might be important to saving them against the zombies also. 
I just wish he said that out loud one time <laughs> to John or to Tormund, where they yeah. could have had like a council meeting where they discuss all this. And even if the, in the end he still gets burned at a stake, at least he explains his position to Stannis and Tormund and John, and they can move forward better uh, with that understanding. Maybe a lot of them will just gain the understanding anyway. But I'm telling you, I struggle with this a lot. Watch mm. the episode three times took notes and this is the thing i most thought about Hmm. and i'm still kind of struggling to totally understand their actions and consequences and i feel like these men should have talked it over (laughs) there's so much at stake it's frustrating i also on some level chalk it up to the way it's got to be presented on tv we can't watch 20 minutes of an episode of a council meeting among you know it's not as entertaining uh and i guess this way gets me thinking about it a lot too but but anyway, what I was building up to is that Stannis can't actually beat that wildling army. He can only hold the wall against him. And that wildling army can't really beat Stannis either as long as he's at the wall. Yeah. But Stannis but ha- knows Stannis he has to leave. But if leaves the yeah. wall to go attack Bruce <laughs> Bolton, then the wildlings might be able to make it over the wall. Uh, if the wildlings make it over the wall, Stannis might be Bruce Bolton, but then he has this whole new problem in his hands right back where he was. So I've, I don't know how smart this was for Stannis either. It may have been a mistake, but you know how Stannis is. He's stubborn. He may have thought, yeah. oh, surely he'll bend the knee when he's threatened with burning. He may have just been like, of course he will. And he didn't. Stannis can't just be like, okay, I'm not going to burn you. That's not Stannis. Stannis is yeah. going to go through with his... He's definitely going through with it. Yeah. Uh, although I don't know if it was smart for him to not think that Mance wouldn't go through. He's seen other men be burned too right like that was a scene in a past season where melisandre's got all these people who don't want to follow her religion burn them all right burn them all alive and it's even an issue davis is like yeah she's burning people alive you know like any of them could have like i'm guessing they weren't all like great warriors once of the wall leading armies of a hundred thousand a lot of them just random noblemen still willing to burn to death maybe he just totally underestimated mance but it seemed like you should have talked to him first. And then he went totally underestimated. Maybe they could have come up with a better plan. Oh, well, it's, this, it's dawning on me that this is a theme of this episode, is, is, is a people in leadership positions trying to bludgeon their way through obstacles. You have Cersei just trying to beat down obstacles. Yeah. That's been an ongoing theme for her, but it's really brought out in this episode as she's facing, facing issues, but she seems to be focused on... Her view is very narrow. She's overly focused on Tyrion mm-hmm. and perhaps on Marjorie as well. And in... On herself, we'll say. Right. And Daenerys, <laughs> of course, we discussed that at length, how she's just trying to break these obstacles, break the wheel, yeah, <laughs> breaking yeah. the chains and doing all these things, and how she's not being subtle. She's just trying to, you know, I'm going to smash this down. Stannis, same kind of thing. He's like, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to put Roose Bolton's head on a spike and Manta Raider's going to kneel to me. That's that, you know, and if he doesn't, he's burned, you know. And there's these, this, this recurring theme of characters just trying to smash their way to success and it not really having the results they expected and it not really working very well. And you can, and or we see how it's starting to take them down a wrong, the wrong path or how it looks like, I don't know if this is going to go very well. Uh, so all of these characters in these leadership positions seem to need maybe to learn to work with other people and and make some compromises. These are characters that are Cersei, Daenerys, Stannis, not compromising characters yeah. at all. And it's kind of showing how they need to compromise to succeed. It's really showing how these lack of compromise is really causing problems. And in the Vale, we see the opposite, how we see that... It's like a foil to all that. We see Sansa and Littlefinger being like, oh, we're just telling people what they want to hear, and we're figuring out, like, yeah, I don't yeah. trust these people, and we're going to make, we're do behind the scenes. So it's it's kind of the opposite in one out of the four locations. But I want to point out also that uh, 
I, it's a fair statement to say that Stannis isn't compromising, but I pointed out before part of why I appreciate him is because he will compromise. There have been several times someone pointed something out to him, and he's like, all right, fine, we'll do that. Like, I, I think he's willing to, when he sees the light, if you will, <laughs> go shift gears. <laughs> the light of R'hllor. It's true. He's not, what he's not big on is letting people necessarily know that he flip-flops. He is, you're right, that he's a merit-based guy, and when he sees the truth, he doesn't hesitate. But if it comes down to, you know, his stubbornness or giving in, if, if something isn't on the line, he's obviously always going to go with, with yeah. sticking to By his By the way, you know who else wasn't very compromising? Ned Stark. <laughs> <laughs> very, very true. Ned Stark was very uncompromising. And so that's an interesting thing. Now, one, so what I want to close this episode with is the reactions that people had to Mance being burned. Because they showed around, they went around the circle, and we saw different reactions. We saw some of the random Night's Watch soldiers kind of just a little uncomfortable, but most of them kind of just kind of held their, their stone faces. Melisandre does her preaching before lighting the flames. Mance goes to the fire very bravely, although he does show some terror when the flame starts to actually burn him. Or, you know, can't blame him there, I suppose. Solice flat-out smiles, has a creepy smile. Shireen is uncomfortable. Tormund is a mix of uncomfortable and angry. And he's, you can tell he's kind of fidgety, but he's not looking away. He's focused on the flame. You can see the martyrdom of Mance. You can see it kind of almost taking root in his brain. He's like, wow. Free folk don't kneel. <laughs> For real. You know, this guy is, wow, he's rather be burned than kneel. Like, I don't know. I think some of those guys are really going to be fired up about that. Uh, I don't know in what way. I don't know how it's going to play out, but it seems to be a pretty big deal, and uh, I'm excited to see where it leads. What do you think about some of that? Did you have any observations on, on the I way people reacted to it? I specifically also wanted to talk about that. Uh, it, it started to affect some of my thoughts about like the decisions that Mance was making, and uh, the uh, because my, at first I couldn't I I couldn't quite decide. It seemed like the show was making a point of showing us the different people as Mance is being burned, but not really being able to read them. Mostly, I would say, the wildlings and, and the men of the Watch. I think I, some of them were pretty easier to read, like you said, Shireen and... Uh, uh, Solis. Solis, right. I was having a hard time reading Tormund, and, and some of the other guys in the Night's Watch, too, they weren't quite focused on, but there were several other wildlings there with Tormund and several other Night's Watch... Uh, Even little Owl Del- was there watching. Yeah, yeah. Dolores Ed was standing there next to, yep, to yep. John, you know. And I remember thinking it was hard for me to figure out were they, like, appalled, uh, understanding, uh, Disgusted. sympathetic, yeah, there's a lot of... uh, uh, proud, you know. I, I even started thinking about the idea that a lot of the guys yeah. in the Night's Watch themselves at one point have been presented a similar scenario. Fairly or not, you know, you committed a crime and we're either going to kill you or send you to the wall. Mm, that's and, a great point. And here's Mance, not just like, uh, you know, being killed, but being burned alive. And I wondered at some of the men on the wall, if they were like proud of him, you know, like ashamed of themselves. Or uh, I, I wonder what kind of emotions might have gone through someone on the wall, depending on what their scenario was, what crimes they had beforehand, how unfair, how much they were. That's a really good point. You know, what were, they, what, were these, what were these Night's Watch when you think about their own crimes? Like, what if they had faced the noose, or they wouldn't have faced the flames, but the noose or the sword or whatever? Yeah. yeah. It might have brought them all back to that, you know, in their minds, remembering and, uh, their own situation. 
And uh, the especially when I started to consider that this might be Mance's way of keeping the wildlings united in his death, I started to see their reactions a little bit differently. But I, I couldn't tell if Tormund seemed to be emoting a little more so, even though I couldn't I necessarily... He's had read, a real intense look, I think. I couldn't decide what he was emoting, but the other guys were, weren't even emoting as much, and or at least not in a way that I could read. And I, again, I just couldn't decide if it was like, I guess I'm going to go fight with Stannis <laughs> so I don't get burned to death, or if it was, I can't believe he's burning him, I'll never bend the knee. I couldn't decide which way, and I think... Probably some of both, maybe. <laughs> exactly, that's what I started to decide, is it might have been hard for me to read because it was hard for them to decide. It was a close decision. It's not like Mance is like, oh yeah, I'm just going to get burned to death, obviously. You know what I mean? <laughs> it was a tough call for him. He's like, I don't want to die. I don't want to get burned to death, but I have to do this for my people. And I'm sure Stannis is like, all right, we get to burn Mance. You know, I'm sure it was like difficult, close call all around, which I can think translates into difficult emotions to read in response to. Yeah, I definitely appreciated that. That scene, that I, I, as frustrated as I was by <laughs> the, the actions and the way the men were handling it, the lack of dialogue around it and everything, it still really stirred me in a lot of ways. It, it was, I thought it was really well done, too, because you kind of go around the circle. You see the emotions of different people reacting a lot of different ways from disgust to horror to Celise, like, to seeming to be, like, it's appealing to her for some reason, it, yeah. to John being the last person, and he's just like, no. There's no reason to make him suffer like this. We're not doing it. He takes action. He's like, this is pointless. I'm going to shoot I'm gonna shoot him with the arrow, and that'll be it. No one will be able to You can't go back on that. You know, Mantle will be dead. Then you can't, you know, he's not going to suffer through being burned alive. And I'll face the consequences. I don't know if there might be some consequences for John for doing yeah. that. But it's kind of hard to imagine for them to be severe. It's just like, Stannis might be like, come on, dude. What did you do that for? <laughs> yeah. It, it, was, it, is, it was a way for the point to be made, for everyone gets to stand their ground yeah. without the suffering happening. And yeah. it, it also is a couple things. Uh, I remember a scene with Tormund and John last season, second to last episode maybe, where I, I wish I could remember the line now, but it, basically Tormund was recognizing and John like, you're not going to bend any of that guy either. You don't accept him <laughs> as your king. You've been with us for too long. You know, yeah, yeah, It's yeah. kind of true. Jon Snow isn't right. necessarily... Uh, gonna accept Stannis as a king. Uh, he's not necessarily gonna go against him, but he, uh, but, but he's has some level of willingness to go against him. You know, uh, it, it will be interesting to me for what what John might face from that. The other thing I really like about the episode, the way it wrapped up, of course, that's the most kind of whoa kind of scene to end on. But of course, the, as this episode is such uh, has so much to do with setting up these new plot lines. And that's a really great way to end because you go around the circle and you see all these different reactions, all these different people thinking different things, and they're all going to do different things because of this, and they all have their own agendas. So it's like it's a culmination of the setup, at least at this particular location. Of course, there's so many locations. Speaking of, a couple locations we haven't seen yet. We haven't seen Arya yet. Yeah, yeah. We haven't seen... Who else we haven't not seen? We haven't seen Bolton. We've, Bolton's, the Boltons have been talked about, but we haven't seen the Boltons yeah. yet. And you know that's going to be soon. We haven't seen Dorne yet. Yeah. We know that'll happen at some point. Uh, we haven't seen... What else haven't we seen? Is there well, along else? with Roos, we haven't seen Ramsay. Right. Theon. Well, uh, true, uh, true. Or Balon, who still has like, a burning lich prophecy that hasn't come to fruition for Balon and that's his true. daughter. And, uh, uh, that's, and the phrase. Uh, and we didn't see any of that in the previews. I thought that was going to be... <laughs> done with by season three and here Phrase we are in season five are just getting like away with it. it see infested by cats what do we do here? 
Um, okay, so let's let's see. We, so we've got a couple. We'll have next week. We'll be <laughs> presumably seeing some of these new plot lines. We'll get to break them in and get them into the cycle, and we'll be, of course, moving on with some of these other plot lines as they head forward. We're really excited to be experiencing the season with you guys. We're real, hopefully wherever you are, you're listening to this. You listen to this episode in a good mood, or hopefully it puts you in a better mood than you were in. Hopefully it doesn't give you too much anxiety about show to book changes. Those of you who are book readers. But if you do have that anxiety, make sure to tune in to our Book to Show podcast, which should be out of roughly 24 hours after this one. We'll be discussing, like I said, a lot of change, the changes and the parallels and a lot of the fun things. We've got to make some predictions based on where we think, where we think things are going, based on things that haven't happened in the books yet. That'll be a lot of fun. And like I said earlier, we'll have some great guests lined up for this season. We'll be announcing some of them as we go along. Ashea will be back. We're also going to have, like I said, the folks from Radio Westeros. We might have Jeff Hartline. I already mentioned all these things early in the episode, but I'm just so excited about them that I wanted to make sure you didn't forget. So, uh, also, very important, we always have to take care of the people that take care of us. And that means giving credit where credit's due. Thank you to our Patreon supporters and those who support us through PayPal. There are a number of ways to support the show. They're all found at historyofwesteros.com. On the right sidebar, there are a number of different ways to help the show through PayPal donations, Patreon support, as well as going through our Amazon links to shop through Amazon.com. Anything you buy through those links costs the same as if you bought it normally, but we get a little bump. It helps the show out. It's kind of a free roll. Everybody wins. So if you can, go ahead and help us out that way. If you can't, spread the word. Tell people to, to watch, check out the show, to watch us on iTunes and or YouTube and or SoundCloud. Leave comments and feedback. Tell us what we're doing right, what we're doing wrong. Tell us how impressed you are by Sean's beard. And specifically, thank you to our Hand of the King, Cash Craig, a.k.a. Vaxis on the forums. Our Warden of the North is Lord Parker, the Bastard of Starkville. The Warden of South, East, and West are unheld positions right now. Those are open for anyone. Go ahead and check out patreon.com slash historyofwesteros if you need more info. Our Master of Coin is Lord Robert Jacobs. Our Master of Whisperers is Lord James the Scholar. Grand Maester Itai wears the jeweled collar of many medals. Our Master of Laws is Rosie the Clever. Our Master of Ships is Lord James Tuttle. The History of Westeros Night's Watch Lord Commander is Lord Commander George the Golden. And he has been doing an excellent job as Lord Commander, upholding the values of, of the Night's Watch. History of West Kingsguard, uh, History of Westeros, Kingsguard is commanded by Lord Commander Shepard. And we have two new members of the Kingsguard. Uh, the slots are now all full. We have Sir Darren the Red, Knight of the Forums, and Elia of New York. Thanks also to Lady Dyerliz of Castle Naughty. Uh, a castle made out of potato, I suppose. <laughs> and Bloody Blake Guthrie, our first and only Northern Champion. So to everybody... Again, we're really looking forward to going through this whole season with you. Season 5 is a whole big adventure. So many things new and different, things that we can't predict. And we're really happy to be going through it with you all. And I'm sure Sean feels the same way. So we'll see you guys all again in about a week. Uh, Except for those of you who are going to watch our Book to Show episode, which will be coming in about 24 hours. Some of you will see then. In any case, see you next time. Valar Morgulis.